Hey everyone and welcome to the 43rd episode of The Liam McCollum Show. I talked with Alan Graham, the founder of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, a really cool Christian organization down in Austin that's doing a lot to help the homelessness population down there. I'm going to show you guys a little clip that they posted on their website just to show you a little bit about what they're doing before we hop in the interview. So I recommend watching the YouTube video of this interview just to see it. I also have some photos later in the interview that you might want to see. So hop over to YouTube and subscribe to me there. I'm also on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Give me a five-star rating on apple podcasts and and share it around thank you guys for tuning in and here's the clip first village is the craziest place i've ever been and ever lived oh i love this place what we're doing here in austin texas has never been done anywhere in the united states of america or the world Mobile Loaves and Fishes has created a new movement designed to lift the most chronically homeless men and women of our community up off the streets When I look back on it, it was nothing short of a miracle. The current system for addressing chronic homelessness in the United States of America is absolutely not working. This is a human issue that requires a human response. Peanut butter and jelly or meat and cheese. Need Need a blanket, bro? Yeah. Mobile Loaves and Fishes was started back in 1998 in order to feed the homeless in Austin, Texas. When the truck goes out, those that are serving and those that are being served are on the same side of the serving counter. Oreos, cookies, There's no disconnect. And this requires a human-to-human, heart-to-heart relationship. Yeah, I know what it means. It's a simple thing. And that singularly was the game changer. Truly, that food truck ministry is what taught us what we needed to know in order to build Community First Village. In 2004, I came up with this idea that we could go out and buy a gently used recreational vehicle, lift somebody up off the streets. Then I started fantasizing as the serial entrepreneur that I am, why can't we build an RV park? Community First Village is a 51-acre master-planned community that is designed to lift the chronically homeless up off the streets of Austin. Mobile Loaves and Fishes cares for the people who have experienced long-term homelessness. Many of them, 5, 10, 15, even 20-plus years. At that point, they have experienced so much trauma. We believe that the single greatest cause of homelessness, particularly in our country, is a profound, catastrophic loss of family. I was married for eight years. I got a divorce in 92. I lost my house and my world because I lost custody of my son, full custody. It it devastated me. So I medicated myself with drugs. To tell you the truth, I I really didn't want to live anymore. But coming to Community First, it's been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Our role is to really bring them into a community where they are loved and cared about and where they have an opportunity to begin the process of healing from all of that trauma. At Mobile Loves and Fishes, our only goal is to inspire communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless. That's it. 
The neighbors that live at Community First Village are incredibly gifted human beings. One of the joys of the work that we do is being able to give them the opportunity to put those gifts and talents to work. We create micro-enterprise opportunities for our neighbors to earn a dignified income doing things that they love to do. We have a car care business, an art house, a pottery operation, a blacksmithing shop, a wood shop, and a full-blown organic farming operation. Over the last two years, we've paid out more than a million dollars to our neighbors. That's putting money back into their pockets to help them to be able to earn a living and enjoy life here. <laughs> All of us desire to have purpose in our life. Community First Village is transforming the lives of everyone who's a part of this community. This place has really empowered me to do great things. I have my own family here. <laughs> a real family that pulled me up and loved me when I couldn't love myself. This is where I got my life back. Housing will never solve homelessness, but community will. All right, Alan, welcome for joining the show. Yeah, great to be here, Liam. Thanks for including me. Yeah, of course. I've been following you guys for a few weeks now. Uh, my friends actually showed me your organization. Um, but before we get into it, do you want to just introduce yourself and explain uh, who you are? Yeah, so I'm Alan Graham. I'm the founder and CEO of Mobilos and Fishes, uh, an organization I founded and. 23 years ago in 1998, uh, really simply to go out and just feed the men and women that you see on the streets. Uh, and that, uh, that process of uh, building relationships with people out there uh, led me to this place that we are today, which is really building a new movement throughout the United States called Community First. Uh, uh, which is built on a philosophy that the single greatest cause to homelessness is a profound catastrophic loss of family. And that what uh, we each need is that, that family, that forged family, uh, that reconnection, uh, bringing people back into a community uh, in, environment. And so that's, that's our model. Okay. And this started off with you and a bunch of church members, right? Yeah. Yeah. A few of my buddies from church, uh, we're going to go out, we're going to buy a catering truck, uh, and we're going to go feed homeless people, uh, you know, on the street corners. That's it was that simple. So there, is there a story behind that where you guys kind of blown away by the homeless homelessness problem in Austin? Um, and I guess, does your Christianity motivate that? Uh, the, my, yeah, my faith is the complete driver of uh, that deal. Uh, I attribute everything that has happened here to my uh, uh, relationship with uh, Christ. And, uh, and, and there's no, uh, to us, there's no doubt, you know, about that. And that was a driver. And, um, but look, we never... You know, I didn't start this deal to go build some kind of a movement uh, and, you know, walk away from a pretty successful real estate career and jump into this full time. Uh, but boy, it uh, it got me hook, line and, and sinker. And uh, it, it's just been a wonderful 
you know, 23 year journey. Awesome. So can, can you just explain a little bit more what the food truck service was and how you guys were operating? Yeah. And so, um, it, it all started with the idea, really a vision that I got to go out and buy a catering truck, a gently uh, used catering truck. And, uh, you know, for, for us to go from, uh, you know, places where there's unbelievable abundance. And I raised my family in a, in a you know, very high-end neighborhood uh, here. Uh, I, I lived on the low end of the high end, but... Uh, uh, nonetheless, it, uh, I come from a, you know, a privileged, uh, you know, my wife, my kids, uh, they grew up in a privileged uh, environment. Uh, but a catering truck that would go from those of us who have abundance uh, down to the streets where they lack abundance. And, um, and there were three things about that truck that were really important. One is that the truck went where the people were. We didn't herd them to a centralized location, the soup kitchen. Secondly, uh, uh, there was always an abundance of food uh, on that truck that gave people the opportunity to make a choice about what they're going to eat as opposed to getting a food unit. And then the, the last thing and most important thing is that those that were serving and those being served were, were on the same side of the serving counter. And so it did require this, you know, one-on-one -on -one, uh, connection uh, between people. And, uh, I, you know, look, this was just out of my church. Uh, it's going to be a little ministry of the church, but it just blew. And, uh, and other churches wanted to do it. Other cities started coming. Uh, and then I started spending the night out on the street with my friends, uh, and learning more about them. And I, I just fell in love with that population. Uh, and I fell in love with their struggles and the challenges and the trauma that they have been through. Uh, and then in 2005, I went and bought a gently used recreational vehicle and lifted one guy up off the streets. He still lives with us and put him into a privately owned RV park. And uh, at that point, all I wanted to do was build an RV park on steroids and here I am in the middle of, uh, you know, what is now uh, uh, called a movement throughout the U.S. And you live there, right? You I live do live there, community. yeah. Um, do you want to just talk about what your guys' mission is then and like um, how it started, get more into that process? I know before the interview started, we talked a little bit about how you had to go to the city council. Um, you tried proposing a plan. Do you want to talk how that first developed? Well, um, you know, our vision, the thing that drives this organization is that we empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless, not to the homeless, not for the homeless, but with side by side. So that's our, that's the powerful nature of, of what we do. It's getting the entire city engaged uh, with our brothers and sisters uh, in, in in this work. Um, and uh, that vision statement, frankly, has turned out to be pretty, uh, pretty powerful. The what and the how is, uh, is, you know, we do that leveraging catering trucks, we do that leveraging our village here, 
And then another program, the third leg of the three-legged mobilos and fishes stool is Community Works, which is a entrepreneurial micro enterprise uh, uh, deal to empower people into a purposeful uh, lifestyle, given all their uh, myriad of disabilities. We had uh, gone to the city and said to them, if you would provide us with a tract of land anywhere uh, in the city, we don't care where it is. Uh, we just have two requirements. One would be that uh, it, the property have the entitlements to do what we wanted to do, mm -hmm. zoning, water, sewer, et cetera. And then the second thing we needed was reasonable access to public transportation. And if you do that, city, we will raise all the money uh, to build all the infrastructure and, you know, what we then called an RV park on steroids. <laughs> uh, and within that RV park, it included little camping cottages, not unlike you would find in a KOA. Uh, and, uh, but that morphed into this... Uh, this whole tiny house thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, the tiny home movement nationally, the thing that they build on wheels, uh, uh, I was always suspicious of that movement anyway. And what we do is very different than, uh, okay. than yeah. So you wouldn't even associate yourselves with the tiny home movement at all? No, we would, we would say that uh, it, regardless, it doesn't matter what you build. Uh, so people will come down here uh, enamored by our micro homes. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to see them. They want to see a 3D printed home. Uh, uh, you know, but that's that's not what this is all about. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Because yeah, I guess there is kind of a, a little bit of a spectacle behind the 3D homes and these tiny homes, but that's not the point. Yeah, and and the spectacle is pretty accurate. So, yeah. yeah. Part of the reason that you start started this was because um, the current system for addressing chronic homelessness just wasn't meeting the needs of the homeless community. Do you want to speak to that? And um, I know part of the philosophy is that housing itself won't solve the homelessness problem. Well, that's what we believe uh, very profoundly is that housing alone will, will never solve homelessness, but community will. And uh uh, you know, I'd rather give up my house than lose any member of my family. I mean, it's just that simple. And, um, and that's fundamental uh, here uh, to our belief is that profound uh, catastrophic loss of family, uh, you know, which is the bus driver for what we do. Yeah. So, and then with, like housing projects and stuff like that that had happened before. What what did you see as as the problem with? Um, I know that in some interviews, like in a Reason magazine interview you had, you said that you're you're pretty conservative, pretty libertarian. So what did you identify as the problem with these these programs? Well, um, you know, we arguably live in the most abundant country ever in the history of the world. I mean, uh, nothing compares uh, to this, even the Roman Empire back in 
the day, I don't believe compares to, you know, how we get to live here, uh, all of us. And, and you see these men and women standing on our street corners and you're wondering what, what's going on? Why would you choose that? And as you dive into relationships uh, with them, you discover that, that they didn't choose that. Uh, uh, you know, basically through a lot of different circumstances, most often this profound catastrophic loss of family that's initiated by, you know, super heavy doses of trauma. Um, these men and women this relatively small population of people found themselves uh, untethered out on our streets with no support, no help, uh, no nothing. And, uh, and that's, that's it. Yeah. And then you guys found yourself outside of Texas limits, correct? Or outside of the city. Um, do you want to talk about that process and why you needed to leave Texas and not be within the city itself? Well, the single greatest impediment to doing something about this pandemic that we see in all of our major cities is what we call NIMBY or not in my backyard. I mean, there are people that will just absolutely uh, uh, become, will implode at the idea that you would move these people, uh, you know, into their backyard, into their, uh, their community. And the leverage that they use is zoning. Uh, but in the state of Texas, uh, and this is rare, there's no zoning outside of municipal boundaries. Uh, so you could just step just outside the city of Austin city limits and be able to, uh, uh develop without, uh, there being a public process to ascertain whether this is an appropriate land use or not. So, uh, that's been a big benefit here in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. Um, were you guys actually like, did you have any problems with the pandemic and how did you deal with, with that? Well, the pandemic has been a Royal pain in the ass. I'll tell you that. Uh, and uh, we're just now, you know, reopening our village um, to outside guests and volunteers and stuff like that. But, from an internal point of view, we have had no COVID cases. Our first COVID case happened about three weeks ago. Wow. That was that. Now, um, we have a vaccination clinic going on right now as I speak. And I think uh, by the end of the day, I was told that we were going to be in the uh, 70, 80% uh, vaccination rate here in the village. And so, um, uh, but look, it was a, uh, uh, it was a, it was a challenge getting a handle on, uh, all the protocols, social distancing. Uh, but now we're pretty much, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, you can see I've got a mask draped around my neck and, uh, and, uh, we just, uh, you know, you just got them. You don't pay attention to it anymore. You go into the store, you put the dang thing on and yeah, no big deal. Yeah. And then, so you guys being outside of the Texas city limits, then like you guys were still supposed to follow all these guidelines and everything. 
Well, um, uh, we're outside the Austin city limits. And then uh, we have, um, we're also in Travis County. So Travis County always adopted the city of Austin's Austin public health uh, guidelines. And, uh, and we needed to uh, anyway, um, you know, we needed guidance from somewhere. Right. Uh, and so we, you know, we follow the Austin public health guidelines still do. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then just to move on, like you guys are currently in phase two of, of your entire plan, correct? So um, what does that entail and what are those features and can you maybe get into what amenities and what the community looks like? Yeah, so uh, phase two is adding an additional 310 homes uh, into the inventory. Um, and that's uh, about 110, what we call park model RVs. These are fully self-contained, hooked up to city water, city sewer, city electric, uh, 399 square foot units. Um, and then we have 200 of the micro homes, which are about 200 square feet or less. They have no plumbing. Uh, they're fully electric, fully furnished. Um, and, uh, but they're all connected to one of seven laundry restroom shower facilities and one of seven outdoor kitchens. And these are first class uh, facilities. Uh, we have an entrepreneur hub, 8,000 square feet where people can come in and create uh, products and uh, that we can move into the market marketplace. We have uh, uh, soap making, silk screening, sewing, uh, jewelry, leather work. Um, we have fine art, uh, ceramics, uh, stuff like that. And um, last year that, uh, that generated nearly a million dollars worth of dignified income to the men and women that are part of that uh, part of that program, and um, and then we're also under construction, getting close to finishing about a twenty five hundred square foot aquaponics hydroponics uh, operation, uh, and then on phase one we have an outdoor Alamo draft house movie theater, we have a clinic, we have a store. We have a car care business. You can bring your vehicle here. We'll change your oil, do state inspections, that kind of thing. Wow. And then organic farming operation. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. And then the rent for the homes, is it still $225 for- Well, that's the, that's the lowest rent and it runs up to $430. Okay. And has that been pretty stable throughout time? Have you guys been affected by- inflation in Austin? We raise rents every year based upon the consumer price index increase, which has been running, I don't know, one or two percent. Okay. So okay. Um, we don't do that for the money because it doesn't change much uh, for us. We do it so that people can live in the real world. And uh, we want our people to live in the real world. Yeah. With you guys being a nonprofit, can you kind of like talk about where, I guess, the revenue comes from, how you guys are able to operate and stuff like that? Because you said you don't do it for, for the money. You don't raise the rents for the money. So um, 
and also speak to like how they're actually able to make income in that process. Cause I'm not really familiar with the limitations of what it means to be a nonprofit and stuff like that. Well, um, for us, uh, we have to raise 75% of our budget from through philanthropy. 25% will come from rents and some program income, but uh, 75% has got to come from somewhere else. And, um, and so about 100% of that comes from private individuals or uh, foundations that are managed by, you know, individuals. And, um, and that, that's a, that's a skill set of ours to be able to raise money. Yeah, that's really impressive. And the fact that people have been able to make a million dollars over a million dollars. Um, so do they, have you seen like with the community itself, are they engaged with um, the city of Austin? Do they, do they leave the community or is it pretty tight knit there? And how do people get along? Um, they get along probably a lot like your family. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you have any siblings? Yep. <laughs> and tell me about them. Well, I mean, growing up with them, it's, it was definitely a challenge, but uh, the more I'm away from them and um, going to school here, it's, you know, I do miss them, but we, we bicker for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I had three brothers and uh, uh, it was warfare in my house growing up. And, uh, and then my wife and I, Trisha raised uh, uh, five kids and, uh, uh, there, there could be moments when it was quite a doozy. And, and so it's the same thing here. Uh, uh, we have human conflict, uh, but, uh, you know, the gun and knife club doesn't exist here. So, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, sometimes blood is drawn when somebody got popped pretty good. Uh, and we got to jump in and, uh, uh, figure out how to to heal those relationships, and we have uh, uh, tools that help us help us do that. Just like uh, you know, your fight with your siblings that you know required you know some apologies, and you know, and probably and God, I hope even with your mom and dad, uh, where you know there had to be some of that. Yeah. yeah. So in one of the articles that I, I read, you guys, or they mentioned that you guys have like restorative justice tactics. Um, do you want to speak to that? Well, that's a, uh, that's a big deal, uh, out here. Uh, you know, when you were growing up and, uh, and you got into conflict, first of all, to get into conflict inside your home was act turned out to be a very safe place to do it. Uh, because no matter what you said and no matter what somebody did, uh, they're going to forget about it pretty quick. And, and the love is still going to, it's just, you said, I miss my siblings, you know, I'm glad to be away, but, Oh, I miss uh, my siblings. Well, uh, our, our neighbors here didn't grow up in that kind of environment. They grew up in a, uh, most often a traumatically violent, uh, a background. And, um, and so how you resolve conflict, uh, 
you know, from the streets or from prison or growing up in a, a, a violent family background is not how you should resolve conflict. We don't have to fight over it. Uh, we debate, we argue, we, you know, we forgive. And so restorative justice is a, is really an effort uh, to help people uh, learn how to resolve uh, conflicts and in a very effective, godly, human way. And, um, and so they create circles throughout the community of, you know, these little neighborhoods where people get together and they, they talk about things and they might talk, well, this is what kind of irritates me about Liam, you know, Liam, you know, Liam smokes and he, he, you know, he flicks his cigarettes on the ground, you know, and that, that pisses me off. And, you know, he ought to have the decency because we don't want to live in an ashtray. Uh, you, you know, it could be, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, and then when there are, you know, genuine conflicts, like a couple of people, you know, we, we're a very diverse uh, uh, place here. And uh, there have been names uh, uh, and uh, ethnic slurs thrown at people. And um, uh, to get them, in and talking to each other to understand how, you know, words, words hurt. And, and, you know, I've, we've seen some, you know, minor little miracles uh, happen when people come together and the victim and a, and a perpetrator. And if are there ever cases of crime there at all, like theft or assault? Um, no, not, I mean, Look, we have we have active addicts here, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, ninety nine percent of the times, it's an extraordinarily peaceful uh, environment. Uh, but somebody might steal somebody's debit card, or you know, their bicycle, or whatever. But it's almost impossible to get away with it. We got a billion cameras around here, and uh, you know. And all of those issues are, you know, fueled by drugs and alcohol. And, mm-hmm. you know, we try to go in and, and manage the root causes of those things. But the real crime, you know, uh, no, not, none of that happens uh, here. Uh, just the, the chicken shit stuff like, you know, a crack addict stealing your bike to go sell it for some more crack. It's, you know, but... That's, that's not an everyday occurrence by any stretch. Yeah, and if, if it were to ever occur, would you still have the same restorative justice kind of forgiving approach? Well, uh, you know, our, you know, our MO, yes, we would, and, and we do. Uh, but number one is that if a crime is committed, we want the police called. Okay. I'm a, I'm a law and order guy. So if you've stolen a bicycle from me, I'm calling the cops. And um, they're not going to spend a lot of time on that case. Mm-hmm. But if I have the evidence, you know, the video and stuff like that, you will be arrested and you will have to be held accountable for that, uh, for that action. And then uh, we'll bring in the restorative uh, uh, practices. Now, if you get into a, uh, a schoolyard fight uh, with somebody, um, that doesn't require, uh, 
you know, calling 911. Um, and we've got it all on tape. We'll do the, uh, we'll do the restorative stuff. Uh, but we, we open that up. It, it can't be mandatory. It's gotta be a free will. It's gotta be a free will thing. So, uh, and, and we're actually trying to figure some of this stuff out now, you know, uh, if you refuse, what do you do? What do you do at that point? And how many times can you refuse before, Hey, maybe you're a bigger problem and, we can't have you in this community. Right. And then um, how many people are currently there? Uh, there's probably 270, 80 people here on campus right now. And then you guys also offer health care and counseling services, correct? Is that, do they pay for those services? Well, um, the, the health care is always provided through uh, healthcare conduits. We're not the healthcare people. And, uh, and we always work with other partner agencies on case management and counseling and, and that kind of thing. And so if you, no one's refused because of money and, but most of our people have access uh, through a couple of different healthcare channels to help offset those costs uh, like Medicaid, Medicare, we have something here called the MAP program, Obamacare, this kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. And then what is the application process like for someone to get into community first? Well, yeah, first have to go through a coordinated assessment process, which uh, is through a partner agency of ours that runs our homeless management information system. Uh, if they make it through that uh, process, then they... Uh, they come down to us and uh, they have to fill out an application here uh, and then they get in the queue and, you know, when they come up for the queue, they'll, they'll, br they'll be brought in for a uh, in-person interview. Uh, and if they make it through that process and, uh, um, you know, it, you know, they'll end up living here and, and it just depends that, that could take months for people. It's not a fast deal. Okay. And then what are like the, do they have, I think I read they have to be homeless for more than one year. Well, uh, our fundamental definition is a unaccompanied male or female with a disabling condition, uh, having lived on the streets of Austin for at least one year or episodically homeless, adding up to a year over three years. But the average time on the streets uh, for the men and women that live here is 10 years. Wow. Wow. And then how does one become a sponsor? I, I see that people can sponsor homes within Community First. Yeah, pretty easy. I mean, we get them, uh, you know, our, uh, our fundraising department is called Relationships and Giving. And, uh, and uh, we just connect people with them and they'll, they'll walk them through all the... Uh, ways that people can give and, and what the naming opportunities are around those. And that's, that's one of them. Okay. And then there's one interesting headline that I read that the first person to ever live in a 3d printed home was in your community. That's um, correct. Yeah. And that was part of phase two, correct? You guys yeah. have a 3d printer and these, we don't have the printer. We have, uh, we, the company that, invented the technology icon is an Austin based, uh, 
uh, company and they, uh, they came out here and, and built seven of them as kind of a beta, uh, you know, to test their tools out and stuff. So, and this just helps these houses be more affordable. Their goal is to do that, but they have a long ways to go before they get it there. Okay. Do you guys plan on taking models elsewhere across the country or have you? Well, yeah, uh, we're not doing it ourselves, but we have a replication strategy uh, that we've been deploying for several years. We've had uh, about 400 people from 150 cities, 32 states come here. And there are replications now happening in about uh, eight or 10 locations around the country now. Okay, cool. Um, and then one last question is, uh, you guys partner with Stand Together. Are you, um, can you kind of just speak to about what Stand Together's message is, or I guess they're your parent organization? Um, well, they're not, uh, we're not umbilically related. Oh, okay. uh, myself and, uh, and uh, two of my staff members, uh, our president and our chief operating officer, went through a six-month cohort with Stand Together. And uh, what part of their catalyst uh, community. So we got to know the Cokes uh, uh, really well and the Stand Together folks and the AFP folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, Stand Together is really, uh, you know, we're, we're probably philosophically in lockstep that uh, if we want to solve these big uh, issues of our times, uh, it's got to be done by we the people. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, that's what we do. You know, we empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless. So our, there's a lot of philosophical alignment with, uh, with staying together yeah. and, and they're a, they're a financial supporter of our, our deal. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alan. I think we covered everything. If there's anything else that you'd like to say, if you want to, um, tell people where they can find information about Community First. That would be awesome. Yeah, just go to our website at mlf.org. That's mobileloavesandfishes.org, mlf.org. And uh, there's a, it's a pretty pretty robust website, a lot of collateral there. Um, and you can click on the Community First uh, link, however you get there, probably under the About Us thing. And uh, um you could spend probably quite a bit of time on that website, but a lot of our video collateral and uh, stuff is there. Uh, there's also a 12 minute tour video of this property. That's pretty, uh, pretty awesome that we just completed last year. So cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks Liam. It's the weekend. We can let go. It's the full send. It's the get go.